Welcome back to another episode of Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam. Adam, what's going on? Hello. Uh, doing great. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. How's your car? Summer is... It's, it's coming, man. It's coming. My car is ready to go to the beach. Uh, yep. It is tired of being buried in snow. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it came, weirdly came out of the snow and rain, like not very dirty. I don't know how that happens. Oh, nice. uh, but uh, I'm glad because wash, getting your car washed in New York is one of the many things about New York City that is just more complicated <laughs> than it needs to be. See also going to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> See our previous conversation yeah, exactly. about how we, <laughs> on how we get to the beach. Well, on this week's episode, uh, we're super excited uh, to be talking to our newest lab member, Chelsea Fritas, to discuss the recent boom in resale platforms uh, and what this all means for retailers and brands. But we also have another pretty exciting announcement, and that is Membership March. Adam, are you excited for Membership March here on Floor 9? I'm so excited for Membership March. It's going to be fantastic. So what exactly is Membership March? Well, I'm glad you asked, Adam. We are now launching a referral program to all of our listeners. And if you refer three new listeners to the show, you will get some custom Floor 9 swag. And we're starting out with custom t-shirts. So if you go to refer.fm forward slash Floor 9, you can sign up for an account, get a custom link, and then go send that link to your friends, your family, and anyone that might be interested in the show uh, to get your three referrals, and then finally, this custom Floor 9 merch. This program will be running all March, uh, maybe even a little bit past March, and we're super excited about it. So welcome to Membership March. And if you're looking for more details, definitely check out our show notes. Uh, We'll have all the links for you, uh, for you to be able to sign up for your custom referral link. With that out of the way, Adam, let's dive into this week's news. Uh, First up major direct listing uh, from Roblox. Uh, so Roblox began trading yesterday for the first time. Uh, why are we so excited about this? Why, like, why is this big news? I think for us, it kind of comes from the angle of the metaverse or the microverse. Yeah, no, it's it's basically a big, uh, you know, sort of coming out party for uh, the metaverse and, and the ability to invest in the metaverse, um, which is something that has received a lot of attention over the past year. Um, it's something that we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, the metaverse, the idea of the metaverse being this interconnected, immersive 3D world sort of powered by game technologies that will interconnect a bunch of different products and services, much like the web works today, um, but in a much more immersive space. So, you know, this is commonly thought to be one of the next sort of big technology shifts and shifts in the computing space, certainly shifts of consumer attention. We've been seeing uh, game companies like Roblox eat up more and more time and attention from consumers away from other forms of media. And uh, the metaverse will be their sort of push to subsume everything and and to really start to challenge the FANG companies as the ones that are um, capturing the majority of our time and attention online. The other, you know, major players are Minecraft, which is uh, now owned by Microsoft, uh, Epic Games with uh, Fortnite and Unreal, um, which is still private. Obviously, Minecraft is important, but a relatively small part of Microsoft. So you could obviously invest in Microsoft if you were interested in this space. Roblox is sort of the first pure play metaverse uh, stock. uh, And I think that's why uh, there's so much excitement around it. It's also, I mean, just forget about their metaverse ambitions. They are also a, an incredibly popular, incredibly high revenue generating 
game. I'm hedging because I don't. Their profitability is a little weird if you look at the S1 uh, because of the, how their payments to creators go. But they uh, are played by more than half of kids under 16 in the U.S. Uh, on a weekly basis. So um, it, if you have kids, you probably know about Roblox. Um, and they're also they also have a huge creator platform. It's, it was the the first of the proto metaverse platforms to really allow creators to monetize their work. So you can create your own games inside of Roblox, which is most of what Roblox is. If you're unfamiliar, is playing these sort of games created by other people, and or you can create objects and skins and things like that. Um, and uh, they, I, I believe, they paid out about a half a billion dollars last year to creators on the platform, and that is surely going to be way up the next time they report those numbers. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, but I, th- I think you nailed it on the head. And that's to your point. It's like this is the first time the public can invest in the metaverse uh, in, in a tangible way. Um, so definitely more to be like, to to watch as this uh, company continues to grow. Um, but we're super excited about it. Uh, and it's definitely something that all of our brands and clients and marketers should be thinking about as ways in which these you know new digital third places are going to become more and more important to uh, consumers and where they spend their time. Next up, we have some news from Disney. Uh, and that is they have officially signed about a thousand NHL games to stream on ESPN Plus. Yeah, I mean, all, all of the major leagues had their own streaming services pretty early, uh, of course. But uh, I think everybody knows that that's, you know, not going to hold going forward, everything's going to sort of reshuffle a little bit. ESPN Plus up until now had really been sort of a placeholder for ESPN and Disney um, as part of their ESPN Plus, Hulu, Disney Plus bundle. Um, it had really been a placeholder where it was all the content that they basically didn't have time to air on ESPN. It was a lot of, uh, you know, lesser, lower interest sports, um, which, you know, definitely still have an audience. There's still an audience for that stuff, but it was less valuable. I think this is by far the most valuable content uh, that they have landed for ESPN Plus. It's really going to give ESPN Plus a boost um, here in the US. Um, And it's also going to give Hulu a boost. There are going to be 75 games that will be exclusive to uh, ESPN and or Hulu over the course of the year also. Um, And they're really, I think, pushing ESPN and Hulu together as sort of the sports solution. Um, obviously, there's the live tier, live TV tier of Hulu, which can get you a lot of the games that are on broadcast TV as well. So I think they're really trying to sell that here in the US. In other markets, as we know from Disney's Investor Day uh, last year, um, a lot of the sports are going into Star, which is sort of their version of Hulu in other markets. Um, so uh, I think you know their, their sports story is starting to come together. This is a, a big move. So yeah, this was is, is a big step into uh, the future and, and does sort of start to rationalize some of what we're seeing with, with uh, sports and streaming, because I think uh, up until now, it has been a little irrational and all over the place. And to your point, it is interesting to note that like this isn't part of the Disney Plus product at all. This is still outside of that package. And it's sort of intertwined with Hulu. So it's we'll see if it, one day we'll see a, a, a bigger Disney bundle where it's all together and you, and you pay for Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. But as of right now, it's still a little bit separated. Yeah, correct. In other markets, Star is being rolled into Disney Plus. I suspect that eventually in the US that Hulu and Disney Plus start to 
merge at some point. Um, but uh, I think that that's still probably a couple of years away. And just some additional news on sports coming to streaming services. Amazon is reportedly in talks to carry additional NFL games exclusively on Prime Video. So again, we know Amazon has experimented with streaming select NFL games either on Twitch or their other properties. Um, so it just seems like there's just going to be potential for more of that happening. Um which is, I think, pretty interesting. Um, I wonder how that's going to really impact the linear TV market. Uh, it's been in a decline for a while. I mean, sports has been the linchpin, like we talk about this. Um, so I, I wonder how that is going to impact the larger linear TV market if they lose their you know, primetime NFL Thursday and Sunday and Monday night football. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's it's not going to be enough to get people. You're not. It's not. We're not saying you're going to be able to cancel your cable subscription and still see all of the NFL. Obviously, this is just one slice of the the many pieces of the NFL pie. But uh, I think it's a, it, it makes a lot of. I, honestly, I don't know if Amazon would want all of the NFL, even if they could have it, they get almost as much benefit from getting this one slice as they would from getting the whole pie, right? All Amazon wants is they want to use this to convince people who care about the NFL who do not have Prime to pay for Prime. Um, They don't necessarily care if you're watching all your football on Amazon. They just want you in that Prime bundle. So, uh, which is different than I think Disney and what they're doing with the NHL. I think Disney would eventually like all of your sports to be on ESPN Plus and Hulu. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of a different strategies, uh, but um, this is moving, I think, slower than people would like, <laughs> than a lot of audience members would like. Uh, but, uh, you know, for, for the time being, you are still going to need some linear television. And Disney is probably just fine with that because it does prop up their ESPN, uh, their ESPN revenue from cable companies. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. As, as we know, nothing's absolute. There's always going to be a probably like a weird medium uh, about how this all kind of comes together. And I think it'll just be a gradual, you know, shift over time to um, these streaming platforms and services. Uh, lastly, though, just to kind of round it out in the streaming uh, environment, we have some updates from uh, Netflix. They launched a new product called Fast Laughs, which is a TikTok-like feed for funny videos that is actually in the homepage of the app. Now, Adam, my biggest question for you is, are they competing with TikTok? Are they trying to get into the social sphere here? Or is this just a product feature, the way to kind of promote discovery? I have my opinions. What are yours? I mean, I think the most obvious reading is that this is very similar to what they did when they did. They they moved some some trailers into the stories format of vertical video uh, last year. Um, it, it is obviously promotional for the, the longer form content. But I do think there is a little bit of a uh, uh, an interesting test to see if they can get people opening the Netflix app for this content. Um, you know, Netflix and TikTok do compete for attention. If you're watching TikTok, you're probably not watching Netflix. If they can get people to open the Netflix app in those moments when they want to consume shorter content or, you know, you're standing in line at the classic standing in line at the grocery store uh, <laughs> moment or whatever. Uh, if they can get people to open the app to sort of 
consume that short form content when they're not in the mood for something longer, that would be a huge win for Netflix. And they might then, you know, sort of use that to expand into that area. Um, and it, you know, it still could be seen as, as advertising for these longer form, uh, they're most, it's mostly from the, the standup specials, right? So it still is sort of marketing for Netflix in, in the standup realm. Um, but, uh, you know, it could yeah. be both. I mean, they also have clips from, uh, different shows that are kind of like funny 15 second, clips from like those scripted content i don't know i'm not i'm not fully bought in on this trying to while i do compete with tiktok for sure for attention i just don't see this as the solution for that i look at this as a product feature that is adapted from social feeds and you know popular social formats as a way to see if there's a more easy way to drive discovery on their platform across their shows and it's like why not you know it's like there's really no loss to do that but the the content on there it just to me it doesn't it's in no way competes with with what's on tiktok or the other social platforms it's its own type of content just in the feed that people are used to seeing um so i look at this as very much as a product feature to help drive discovery of their platform you know i think you're right in that that's not the primary intention the primary intention is discovery on their platform but <laughs> you know, I can see, I can see the slide in the project manager in the product manager's deck that says maybe people go there as a destination, and we build that out to something new. If the first thing somebody does after they open Netflix is go to that feed, and you see that behavior recurring in users, then maybe it's something that they should invest more in. You know, more, more, more to come. Uh, it's an, it's an interesting development. Well, with that, that's that's going to wrap up this week's news. Uh, next up, we're going to dive into our main conversation with our newest lab member, Chelsea Fritas, uh, to discuss the boom in the resale trend happening uh, in today's market. Listeners, welcome to this week's main conversation. With us, we have Chelsea Fritas, formerly of the UM strategy team, but now officially part of the IPG Media Lab strategy team. So Chelsea, welcome back to Floor 9. Hello, hello. Great to be here. You know, dreams really do come true. (laughs) How does it feel to be part of the lab? It's awesome. And, you know, I imagine that my mic is in the mail and my headphones set. (laughs) Yeah. Everything, yeah, it's 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 all part of the package. Well, Chelsea, you're here this week, and we have a pretty exciting topic to talk about, which is really all about re-commerce. So do you want to just give us a little background around this idea of re-commerce? Because it's not anything particular new, but like how consumers are behaving around it and interacting with it is completely new. Uh, so do you want to root this, root this show for us? What is re-commerce? Yeah, absolutely. So... Recommerce or simply reverse commerce um, is selling something that's been previously owned. And we've seen this evolve a lot over the past couple of years. Like you said, this isn't necessarily a new concept, but we're seeing it take off a lot with the rise of like online platforms. And it's driven in large part by millennials, by Gen Z. Um, we know that the market is currently worth $24 billion and it's projected to reach $51 billion by 2023. And there are really three key things to keep in mind, three drivers as we look at re-commerce. The first one being price. We know that especially in this current um, landscape or economy, that people are really conscious of budget. And second, it's sustainability. This mindless consumption is really an enemy in culture. And we're seeing that vintage products can prove the test of time. 
And then third, uniqueness. This ability to find a rare or special piece um, is something that's really praised in the fashion community. My first question has got to be, so why, so why now? Yeah, I think like many things, this has absolutely been accelerated during the pandemic lifestyle. And quite frankly, like first and foremost, people have more time. According to ThreadUp, 88% of consumers started a thrifty hobby during the pandemic that they plan to continue. So not only are people shopping these sites, they're also, you know, cleaning out their closets and selling on these sites. Um, in addition, people's like physical um, spaces have been completely disrupted. So whether that means that people are moving or they're cleaning up, there's also just this general desire um, to address their environment, um, whether that means buying something new for it or selling something. And with that, I think we've learned this a lot last year. People are more introspective and mindful about where they're spending their money. So there is, you know, this beauty of the resale economy that that pushes sustainability and that sustainable mindset. Seventy-three um, percent of millennial consumers, we know this, prefer to shop from sustainable brands. Do you think that part of the the timing for this also is that we? are in a, obviously because of the pandemic, people were spending less on fashion as they were going out less, but maybe also planning to make a big fashion comeback as they come out of quarantine. I'm just wondering, uh, you know, you talked about people cleaning out their closets, obviously that has been happening, but also like it was a time for them to question their sort of fashion assumptions about what they, how they wanted to present themselves through fashion. I just wonder if, if that's maybe part of it also. I mean, I love thinking about it in terms of like this metamorphosis, right? When we all reemerge, um, <laughs> we've heard so much about like, you know, we're going to see this great twenties um, reimagine and like, we're all going to have this new like flair for life. But I think with that, people have more time to kind of meditate and understand what has meaning and meaning to them. It's easy to throw something out if you can quickly replace it. You know, that tank top from Zara last season is going to be the first thing to go in the toss pile. But my, let's say, Ants 49ers bomber jacket from the 80s is something that like I will not let go. I mean, most things from the 80s stand the test of time, the music, the clothing, you can't let those things go. You mentioned ThreadUp as one of the main players in the space when it comes to uh, this idea of, of like the resale um, market. So what are some of the other players that are out there? I have to imagine Poshmark is involved mm-hmm. in that uh, landscape. Yeah, great question. And I think we can't talk about the new without necessarily highlighting the old. So I'll use quotes here. Offline secondhand <laughs> has always been around to some degree. <laughs> Trading, thrifting, the garage sale. And then eBay really brought the sale of secondhand goods online in 1995. And since then, we've seen this momentum um, and we've seen the stigma of used or old really be completely challenged. That mentality of used or dirty has been really replaced with uniqueness or specialness. People get extreme satisfaction um, in that thrill of finding something rare, whether that be clothing, sneakers, jewelry, furniture, or even like records. So we're seeing resale sites that fall into three categories. Um, we've mentioned ThreadUp and something like ThreadUp, they really make the process accessible and also seamless. They now have like over 17 plus partnerships in the fashion space, including one that was just announced this week with Walmart. 
the world's largest retailer, to both leverage their physical spaces and their online presence. So ThreadUp is really committed to making it super easy. Like I remember ordering something from Reformation um, a couple years ago, and a ThreadUp envelope actually came in the packaging. So it's really easy to then um, send clothes back directly to ThreadUp and begin that transaction of selling. Um, we're also seeing platforms like the Real Real or Depop that drive discovery. This is where luxury items or specialty goods are being bought and sold. There's a lot happening around the Real Real. There was a partnership with Gucci announced last year that only further validates the resale economy. Um, the other important category to highlight, like you said, Facebook Marketplace. Um, we're seeing community as a key driver, and both locally, like uh, Facebook Marketplace or like the next door, as well as digitally, like a Poshmark, it's a place where sellers actually have control of their curation and gain clout. Poshmark, um, from a media perspective, they actually launched a stories feature in spring of last year where key sellers could post their items in like a stories format to really start to show that like social community aspect of the platform. So how is this impacting the shopper journey? We have all these new platforms that are bubbling up uh, in this resale market. Uh, to me, might be taking away from the traditional mindset of how we think somebody goes through and buys a, a product. Exactly. So I think people used to go to a store, look online, either even discovering things on social media. And that's not always the case anymore. People have a different attitude when it comes to shopping and purchasing and selling. It's all part of the new consumer journey. And it's driven by experimentation, discovery, and creativity. So first, like the path to discovery has really been disrupted. People are now checking these platforms first to find items that actually feel a little more exclusive and feel special. And with that, we also see um, people being very, very creative and practicing this new concept called thrift flipping to put their own spin on clothing. So the life cycle of an item is really being challenged because people don't want to buy something that looks like what everyone else has. They want to actually put their own creative spin on it. And we're seeing social platforms like a TikTok, for example, really be key players in this space and allowing people to not only have all of these like DIY inspiration uh, videos at their fingertips, but also encouraging them to post their own like consumer content. So now a piece of clothing isn't just something you're wearing. It actually fuels like your entire presence, whether it be socially and digitally as well. What do you say thrift flipping? I've never heard that term before. So like, what, what, what exactly does that mean? Totally. So thrift flipping would be finding that like perfect denim jacket and then adding some patches, adding some little studs, making it feel unique to who you are and your fashion identity. It seems like there's this trend to be maybe like less disposable with the products that you that you buy or you have. I think that's exactly right. Like the enemy isn't necessarily newness. The enemy is disposability. People don't want to think that something that they just purchased, um, whether that be furniture, clothing, etc., they don't want it to feel cheap or disposable. And people are now much more comfortable buying something secondhand because it actually has proven the test of time. And when you see it, um, almost that like stamp of approval or validation by these platforms, it only like removes that barrier and makes people more comfortable with the process. So not only is it more accessible, it's also um, more of a comfortable process for consumers. 
And you see brands stepping in too. Um, I mean, I think it's super interesting. I think it's uh, obviously there's a whole lot happening here on the fashion side of things, but it also brings to mind what we're seeing with uh, with consumer products and with with um, consumables and like with, with companies like uh, Loop that is are generating um, you know CPG products that uh, don't you don't replace the packaging in them. They actually come in higher quality glass and metal packaging. And you're just sort of refilling that with refills that are coming, you know, uh, on a subscription basis uh, from from loop. Uh, it's kind of an interesting mix of D to C, but also taking advantage of a lot of the sort of benefits of e-commerce where you don't need packaging that looks good on the shelf. Um, we could actually design packaging that looks good for the home, uh, which is not going to be the same thing necessarily all the time. And uh, and incentivize people to use that by, you know, sending them stuff to refill that, that packaging. We are just in the beginning stages of the, this, and we will see more and more industries and different verticals come into this more closed loop circular economy over time. Um, I think, you know, we have uh, what we see, what we're seeing in, in, in auto, I think is interesting. We have companies like uh, Carvana that are coming in and are really changing and disrupting what's happening with the used car market um, that had been something that everybody always sort of looked askance at, uh, even though, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of, of people buy used cars because it is, they can be a great value. Um, but I think we're, as we, you know, in the auto market, as things shift to electrification, which does make cars last longer, if you can swap out the battery, the rest of the car is going to be good for longer. You know, what other things can we change on the logistics side and and the the sort of infrastructure to support using those vehicles for for longer periods of time? So I think, you know, I think we're seeing this, like, like I said, in a number of different industries, it's very early for most of them, uh, in terms of, of making re reusing and refreshing the products a a sort of first top tier experience um but i think that that's the direction everything is headed in and i think that you know consumers want that so i think if if you are in an industry that isn't at least experimenting with this right now i think it's time to start thinking about how you might experiment in this area um and i you know obviously I think that affects anybody who makes physical goods, basically, uh, and that five years from now, we'll be recording a podcast where we're, we're talking about that happening in even more categories. So Adam, so you, you know, you, you, you brought up kind of how we're seeing this trend develop in, you know, f- five years. I mean, Chelsea, like, what are your thoughts on that? How do you see this developing uh, in, in like the next five years? I think first, we can talk about what we're, how we're seeing the retail landscape change a little bit because we see the resale boom as one of the key pillars and part of a larger trend that we're calling compassionate retail. So in general, we're seeing a lot of retailers and brands really bring more empathy and humanity through key tactics um, this year, both out of necessity and out of ease for consumers. So things like prioritizing sustained hygiene or economic solutions by using like a Klarna at checkout Um, We see curation to help people make um, easier decisions in checkout. We also see um, a big focus on customer service, like easier returns and access. And then especially where what we're talking about now, bringing social causes to the forefront, things like sustainability. When we look at resale, it gives us an opportunity to integrate into that consumer experience or that journey. So like ThreadUp partnering with Walmart actually creates much of an easier process because people can bring their clothing to a Walmart or can now purchase from their um, online site different used things. 
we know that this is here to stay because we see it having a lot of legs in other like key retail trends. Uh, another thing that is happening right now that I think is going to play into how this market develops, particularly in the fashion industry, but also in uh, you know anything else, not not in CPG products because they're consumable, but in in, in a lot of other categories, is uh, collectibles. And uh, you know we already sort of have obviously this is again an idea that's been around for a long time of uh, items that are collectible either because they are not in production anymore or they have sort of an interesting provenance. Um, and uh, a thing we've been talking about a lot uh, at the lab recently is NFTs, which are a di- way to make it digital collect collectibles. Um, but also a way to attach sort of a, a certificate of authenticity, for for lack of a, a less corny word, uh, to uh, to physical objects. So you can actually, um, you know, five years from now, when you're you're looking at these um, resale items, you might actually be able to pull up a list of every person who has owned it and sort of, you know, if they altered it at all and, and added customizations to it, like what that would look like. And in some cases, that's going to make these increase the value of these, these objects, right? We're seeing this in the NFT space already, where the problem of ownership. Um, If somebody famous or trendy or interesting has owned a piece of digital art um, as part of uh, the the NFT uh, ecosystem, the NFT economy, um, that actually raises the value of that item. So um, you could imagine that we are we will get there with physical items as well. And we already have this uh, in for 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 things like fine art and real estate, right? Uh, Maybe maybe classic cars or like you know, fancy cars, uh, as well. Um, but it's because it's all done manually right now. It's basically someone like Christie's coming in and saying this, you know, piece of art was owned by X, Y, Z, and therefore it is worth, uh, you know, ABC. Um, what NFTs do is they, they, they decentralize that they allow it. It lives on a, on a blockchain. Um, it is public knowledge and, uh, it is all very accessible. It makes that accessible for basically every digital item. And, and also in, in, in turn, anything that can be tied to a physical item. So, um, Again, five years from now, we might be talking about the fact that that all of these resale items have a full history of their ownership, and uh, kind of like you know when you're I'm going back to cars again when you when you're buying a used car, you can actually see if it's been in accidents and stuff like that. You'll be able to see that for like a, a vintage denim jacket, and uh, in some cases, it's going to be like oh, this vintage vintage denim jacket was worn by somebody at this event, major historical event that happened or whatever, you know, it's like thinking about things where now we talk about, uh, you know, uh, something that Rihanna wore at the Met Gala is going to be valuable just because of that. Even if the designer is somebody who previously wasn't famous, we're going to be talking about that, but on a much smaller scale for literally every item, which sounds overwhelming. Um, but if you don't care about it, you won't have to care about it. (laughs) (laughs) And now, so like, there's a way to really like authenticate all these little niches and products that like before were very difficult to do, and maybe it was over email or paper tracking. Uh, we have a digital ledger now to handle that, uh, which makes that super easy uh, to kind of buy and exchange and sell, which is, I think, super exciting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's enabling collectibles inside of niches where nobody has to know uh, other than a specific community that this person and this object, for whatever reason, um, is more valuable than an, an identical object, you know, 
in in some other context. Um, and I think we're it's going to open up some really interesting opportunities there for uh, for brands in those contexts to to highlight those things. And it's uh, you know it's going to allow micro influencers to. You know, we, we're talking about minting NFTs, but to to mint collectibles just by uh, by the fact that they can prove that you know to their one thousand fans, this denim jacket, for example, is is now a collectible, uh, and I think that that's very cool, and it's going to change the market for for resale. Yeah, and at a time when there's not a lot of authorities in the space, it allows brands to use some of their weight and their authority and their pool to begin to mo- like remodel and reshift this piece of the industry. So as a brand. And there is a real opportunity here uh, in this idea of reselling, uh, as well as in the concept of circle uh, and thinking about the ways in which you can in- integrate this into your brand uh, going forward, uh, I think is a really important thing for our, our brands to be thinking about, uh, no matter what industry you're in. Because as, as, as Adam mentioned previously, uh, you know, we think this, this concept is going to be expanding uh, outside of just retail uh, into uh, other industry verticals um, as it continues to grow and gain traction. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Floor 9. Uh, and welcome to the IPG Media Lab team. We're super excited to have you here uh, and working with us. So everybody, get your ears ready to hear more of Chelsea on the podcast. Um, so thank you all. Thanks so much. Well, listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As a reminder, Membership March is now live. So please go to refer.fm forward slash Floor 9 to get your custom referral link that you can share with your friends, family, anyone else that might be interested in the show uh, to win limited edition Floor 9 merch, starting with an excellent t-shirt designed by myself and Richard. As always, you can follow myself and Adam on Twitter. Uh, I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R. Adam is at Adam J. Simon. And if there are any questions, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, We're always happy to have a conversation. So thank you all. We'll be back next week. And here's to a excellent membership march. (laughs) 